What is up? This is Perry Noble, and you're about to listen to a message from this year's NLC conference at New Spring Church. Before, but before you do, don't forget, next year, go ahead and save the date. Registration has not began, but September 6th of next year, that would be 2012, we're going to have NLC here at New Spring Church again with Stephen Furtick, Judd Wilhite, Andy Stanley, James McDonald, Matt Chandler, Judah Smith, and myself. It's going to be an amazing day. I hope you can join us. But for now, I hope you really enjoy this talk from NLC this past year. Good evening, everyone. What? Thank you. There's six people standing in the balcony. Appreciate that. You must be charismatic. But uh, it is... uh, a privilege to be here and an honor to, uh, to say the very least, um, to be here with someone that I consider a very dear friend and someone that I, uh, Perry to me is like, a, I think the big brother that I never had. And, uh, I'm so grateful for his friendship. Uh, he has quickly become the favorite guest speaker in the history of our church in Seattle. In fact, uh, recently, I think there's a petition being passed around to petition him to move and become the new pastor of our church. So, so I hate him. And uh, so it's awesome. It's awesome when, you know, a guest speaker leaves and your people say, wow, pastor, we, we thought you were good. And then what comes to mind is, you can go to hell, but you don't say that. You, you say, praise God, brother. Yeah, it's just, it's all about Jesus. Appreciate that. That's what you, that's what you say. You're taught to say. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really overwhelmed uh, by the session that, that we just had. Uh, no doubt I am. Uh, riveted as I was last year, uh, I would I would be here regardless as far as I'm concerned, um, because I think what happens here is, is far more than just a dissemination of information. Uh, we could stay home and go on the internet. We could we could Google information, but you're getting something that is a, a transference that happens in an atmosphere like this, and it is it is insanely spiritual what's happening. And I think what was just delivered to you um, can be a real. Uh, a real moment of demarcation for you and for your family and for your children. And I, I just got a sense that I think, I think some families were saved in the last hour. Um, I, I really believe that. I really believe that. And I, I think there is a lesson in the lesson for all of us and certainly being uh, um, kind of the, the Pentecostal here. Um, I think Pentecostals sometimes are the worst. We, we like to preach uh, good sermons uh, more than sometimes helping people and uh, just picking on my, my people, the Pentecostals. And uh, we, we replace content with volume. And uh, I told Mark Driscoll, I told Mark that. He said, yeah, I've done that once. I'm like, I've done that for a decade. What are you talking about? So, <laughs> but... Um, Mark is a, is a brilliant man, and God has really gifted him. And another person that I look to is an older brother in the same city and someone that I'm, uh, I've learned more, more from than, than, than he'll ever realize, both from him and his wife and their marriage and, 
uh, the example of, of the life that they live uh, on the platform and off the platform. But I think there's a lesson uh, behind the lessons that have been communicated today. And um, that is we have heard from uh, minister after minister, man after man, who is not just coming with a great cadence and rhythm and volume, uh, but coming with a real word from God. And um, if I was Mark Driscoll um, and, and I was as smart as him, I would have I used that 45 minutes to wow you with my brilliance. Um, uh, and like I said, that's, I wish I could do that. I would do that right now. But um, <laughs> maybe that's why I don't have his brain. Um, but uh, for him to come with such clarity and such simplicity and share such a, a simple but yet so profound message, I think is a huge lesson for us as pastors and leaders, a huge lesson for us as communicators. And um, I pray that we catch what, what just happened. I'm sitting there as a, as, 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 a, as a young dude with a lot to learn, and I'm thinking there's, there's a lot to be said here. Uh, a man who has so much to say in terms of leadership and church planting and ministry and expressions and writings and thinkings and theology and philosophy and all kinds of things. And yet he comes with a message of friendship with your spouse, unlike a message I have ever heard on the subject of marriage. And I pray all of us will not forget the words that were just shared. Um, that was very, very special. So, Mark, I just want to say thank you again for sharing that message. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I'll try to preach as short as possible and see if I can catch an early flight home and go get some FaceTime. Lord, Jesus, have mercy. That is, uh... If you know what I mean. So, I think I might have missed the whole point of the whole sermon. Shoot, I hate it when that happens. But friendship does lead to a great connection. So <laughs> I, want to, uh, I want to thank again, I, I think both Stephen Furtick and I are kind of the young, the young guys. And uh, it, to me, it's a real privilege to share the stage um, with these great leaders. And again, they're not just great communicators. Um, they're great men. They're great dads. They're great husbands. And uh, I consider it a privilege just to kind of be around them. I really mean that. And this has been the greatest university that I've ever been a part of, just spending time with great men like this. And uh, you're some of the smartest people I know to take time to come this entire day and just sit and receive not just information but an impartation that comes by the grace of God and the the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm excited because I'm already going home changed. I really am. I'm going home a different man, and that is exactly and precisely why I came. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Now, I'm going to need you to um, get involved verbally uh, because that will really help me um, preach. And and I need to help you, but you got to help me so I can help you, okay? Because I'm Pentecostal and charismatic, and the only way I know the only way I know you're listening is when you're saying stuff like, "Oh, that's good. That's good. Preach. Keep going." Stop, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes. Um, go with me to, to Hebrews chapter 11. And I'd like to share um, uh, a real uh, per- personal message, uh, a message that God uh, spoke to me December 19th. 
in the evening, uh, my hero, my best friend, last year I shared a message. My dad was in the fight for his life. Since then, on December 19th, he has passed and graduated to heaven. And I had lots of questions, lots of consternation, a lot of emotional pain, a lot of difficulty. And so I asked some questions of the word of God, asked some questions of God himself. And I felt like I got a heavenly divine reply through the vehicle of his word. And so I just want to share that with you. I want us to consider the subject of God's promises, the promises of God. And I'm going to title this message, Partial Fulfillment. And here's the simple question we're going to ask this evening for the next 37 minutes and nine seconds. What do you do when the promises of God in your life are at best partially fulfilled? What do you do when the promises of God in your life are at best partially fulfilled? Let's go to Hebrews first. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. It says, these all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Let me read that first portion of this verse again. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now go with me to the Old Testament to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4, and I want us to look at this unique story of what we know now as the, the Shunammite woman and her miraculous son. We're just going to do a fair bit of reading here just to create some context and some framework for where I feel like we need to go in the next few minutes. Are you there? 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 8 says, Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, and there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. So she said to her husband, Look now, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small up room on the wall. Let us put a bed there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there, and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, called a Shunemite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, Look, you have you've concerned with us. You take care of us, all of this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She said, I dwell among my own people, which is to say my husband takes care of me. So we got to keep reading. We got, we got time is ticking. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And I said, well, actually what she didn't tell you is uh, she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. If you know what I mean, he's shooting blanks. So he said, he said, well, call her up in here. So when she called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace the son. And she said, no, my Lord, no. Man of God, don't mess with me. I got my faith out there. I got my expector out there. I've been praying. I've been contending. I've been supplicating. I've been interceding. I've been declaring. I've been confessing the word of God. And I've been believing for a baby boy all these years. And you're going to come up in here and tell me a year from now I'm going to have a baby boy. Don't get my expectation. Don't get my hopes up. I cannot handle another missed promise. I can't handle another promise unfulfilled. Don't, don't, don't mess with my emotions. I, I, I can relate with this lady. I don't, I don't blame her. And the Bible says in verse 17, because of her great faith, she bore a son. 
No, it doesn't say that. And when the appointed time had come, Elisha had told her, and, and cert, certainly it happened. And the child grew, it says in verse 18. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father and to the reapers and said to his father, my head, my head. And he does what every father does. He says, go see your mom. So verse 20, when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, the highest point of the sun, the highest, the brightest part of the day becomes her darkest moment in her existence. And the Bible says he died. The promise of God dies on the lap of the Shunammite woman. Look, I I like this woman. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door upon him and went out. And she called her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And he said, why? Why are you going to go to him? In other other words, they have not communicated, okay? This Shunammite woman is so bent on checking out this man of God and making sure that he takes care of his business and follows through with the promises of God. She hadn't even communicated with her husband. And he says, well, it's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. And she says, something that's very profound she says it is well which is better translated to say it's gonna be all right (laughs) have you ever been there i mean something's going on in your life it's not all right but you're trying to be positive it's gonna be all right that's what she says to her husband and he's a smart man he's like well man you do whatever you want whatever (laughs) so she sat on a donkey and said to her servant, drive, go forward, do not slack the pace unless I tell you it's on like Donkey Kong. So she departed, went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar, he said to his servant, Gaza, look, that's what I showed my woman. Please run now to me here and say to her, is it well with you? Well with your husband? How'd your kids? How'd your wife? How'd your husband? <laughs> and, and she answered, look what she says again. Oh, it, oh, oh, it's going to be all right once you fix it. I like this Shunammite woman, man. I really do. So, so she came to the man of God, the hill. She caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came to push her away. And the man of God said, no, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, I love this part. She said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Was this my idea? Was it? About this time, look, man, I feel bad for Elisha. About this time, he's, he's like, whoa, man, you don't mess with a Shunammite woman. I mean, she, he's like, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went down. Well, I tell you how it went down. I didn't ask for nothing, but you insisted and you gave me a word from God and now he's dead. And this was your idea. I think Elisha's sweating, okay? Elisha's just a dude. He's like, man, this is not going to help my traveling ministry. <laughs> this new book release, if this gets out before the book release, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So he says to Gaze, I says, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If you get anyone, greet you, do not answer. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother says, please, don't just send your servant with a stick. You're coming with me. Well, too late. Gehazi already took off, and, and he comes back before they get there. And Gehazi says, uh, the, 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 the stick didn't work. And Elisha's like, Don't, we're going to try something else. Don't worry about it. <laughs> How many know he's just trying stuff? <laughs> Where are my pastors at? How many know we just try stuff? We just try. <laughs> Pastor, my, 
my marriage is really hurting. Okay, close your eyes and get on your knees. And I'm a... Jesus! They're crying. It must have worked. That's what we do. We just, we just try stuff. So, laid the staff on the face of the child, but neither voice nor hear. Therefore, went back and said the child wasn't awakened, and Elisha came out. So, so the first, I want you to take note of the first thing Elisha tries is, 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 is the stick on the boy. That doesn't work. And Elisha comes to the house, and, and, and there was a child laying dead on his bed. So he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed. So he uses the stick. And the second thing he does is he just, just, just good old-fashioned prayer uh, that doesn't work. So he goes back to the first thing he tried. And he says, I'm a, I'm a, uh, excuse me, no, the, the, the third thing he tries is, is really, is really unique. And we're just going to leave it in the Old Testament, if you don't mind. Uh, he went up and he laid on the child and he put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes. I'm just going to say, ma'am, I don't know how to tell you this. He's dead. I did. Ain't nothing I can do. I give the speech at the memorial, but he's not I'm not putting my mouth on his mouth. I'm not, I'm not going down like that. You know what I mean? And the Bible says the child became warm. Well, yeah, you know. But it says, says he returned and walked. So I, I love this. So he tries to stick. Um, and then, he, and then he, good old-fashioned prayer. And then he just lays on the boy. And then, and then he just starts pacing. So, it, it, I mean, he's just trying, I mean, literally, come on, folks, he's trying stuff here. It's stick, just prayer, laying on the boy, then he's just pacing. I mean, have you ever been there? I mean, you're in such a deep stuff in life, you're just going, God, I just need you. And, I mean, Elisha's just panicking. He's like, Lord, this shit, my woman going to kill me. I need to, you know. And then for whatever reason, the fifth time, he tries what he tried the first time. And I find this interesting. Because the, 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 it says... He returned to walk back and forth in the house, went up, stretched himself out. On, excuse me. The fifth time he tries what he tries the third time, he stretches himself out on the child again. Now, he's already tried that and it didn't work. But for whatever reason, he gets this notion to try it again. That's odd. He just, you know, that, that laying thing, I'm just going to give it one more chance. And this time, it gets weirder. The Bible would like us to note that... The child sneezes, not once, yea, not even thrice, but seven times. And only after the seventh sneeze did Sneezy wake up, okay? I mean, really? Is this necessary? So it's the, it's the, it's the fifth act of prayer, if you will, and the seventh sneeze, this unnamed boy wakes up and I, this is my you, you know Elisha he's just he's so pumped by verse 36 he called Gehazi and said call the Shunammite woman I mean this his ministry is about to flourish he's about to write another book so he called and said pick up you can, you can see him standing there with his shoulders back and he said pick up your son she comes, she's like, oh my God, it worked. He's like, amen, it worked, praise God. You know? and, she, and the Bible says she, she picked up her son and the promise of God was returned. I want to use that passage and, and connect it 
back to Hebrews, and then I want to connect it to one other New Testament scripture, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. And uh, I think we're going to put this up on the screen. Man, I love this scripture. This is so good. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. I want to talk about the promises of God. What do you do when the promises of God in your life at best are only partially fulfilled? Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask now, precious Holy Spirit, that you would reveal unto us the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. We have come for Jesus and help us to see him in these remaining moments we spend together in Jesus name and everyone said there is no doubt in my mind that every single person here under the sound of my voice in Anderson South Carolina has been a recipient a time or two of a promise It might have been a little promise. It might be a significant promise. It might be an extraordinary promise. It might be an average promise. But no doubt you have been a recipient of a promise. And with receiving promises, no doubt doubt there has been at least one instance in your life where that promise was not followed through on. In fact, some of you are here and the truth is you still deal with a little bit of emotional baggage that links all the way back to a promise made maybe by your father or your grandfather or your mother or an uncle or an aunt or whoever it might be who made a promise to be at the game or to follow through or to take care of you or do this and they didn't follow through, they didn't do it and you still, you still, it's still a a touchy, sensitive place in your life. It's, it's one thing for somebody to say, hey, man, I'm going I'm to buy you a candy bar. And they don't. Life goes on. But then there's, there's levels of promises. There's promises that uh, be, be, are so significant that you actually begin to prepare and plan around the promises that you were given. For instance, if I came to you tonight and I said, uh, the Lord has spoken to me to buy you a home completely. Debt free, I'm going to pay for everything. How many believe that could be God tonight? I mean, you actually think that might be the word of the Lord for you. Okay, that was supposed to be a joke, but must have been a little bit more Pentecostal. Okay, so let's just say I was like, hey, you know, $450,000 house. Now in Seattle, uh, that buys you like a, like a thousand square foot two-bedroom house. Now in Anderson, that buys you a mansion with a gate. Okay, so... Just a little perspective from my hood, okay? So let's, I'll buy you a $50,000 beautiful home in Anderson, South Carolina. Now, how many know, eventually, if I convince you that I'm really serious, you'd say, really? Yeah. You'd start making plans, as you should. I say, now, here's the deal. I, I need to, I, I, give me two years. So about six months in, you just send me a text. Hey, you, I'm on, you just on my heart today, Jude. Just been thinking about you, praying for you. Pray, praise God for you and your ministry. A year, you know, you give me kind of the yearly update. Well, God's good. My wife and I, man, we're sure grateful to God for all of his provision. Praise the Lord. It's about the second year. It's, hey, uh, haven't heard from you. I have the unfortunate role of giving you a phone call and saying, look at some 
it's not going to work out. I know I made all these promises. Times are tough. And uh, it's just not going to work out. We're not going to be able to buy you a house. But here's the deal. I'm, I'm sending you a subscription to Sports Illustrated. <laughs> that would be difficult. That would be a letdown. Absolutely. That would be something that it's like, wow. We, we probably wouldn't be BFFs. It would be like, I mean, you didn't even follow through. That pales in comparison to promises that you receive from God. What do you do with black ink on paper? What do you do with Genesis to Revelation? What do you do in the course of your journey with Jesus where the promises are very clear. There is no subjection. There is, 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 it, is, it is very evident and very clear. God has made some profound and overt promises in this book. And if you are a good follower of Jesus, you bank on those promises. You must. We're taught, for, for those of you that don't know, I've grown up in church my whole life. All I know is preaching church. As far as we know, I'm the seventh generation preacher. I've been in more church services than you could ever imagine in your life. I've slept through, slept under chairs, slept in tents, did all kinds of, I've absolutely grown up in church. And I was taught from a young age, you believe on the promises of God. You declare the promises of God in your life. God is for you. He's not against you. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you a future. He wants to give you a purpose. And you plan on these promises. Can I hear an Amen. But what do you do when those promises, when you take inventory of your life and leadership, at best, they're only partially fulfilled. At best. I am theologically persuaded that Jesus is a healer. That's what I believe. I believe that he still heals, heals today. I've seen him heal And as I said last year, my dad battled multiple myeloma for six and a half years, and we believed every day for his complete and total healing, and make no mistake about it, I do not regret one moment of believing. Because that is my only role. I am not a healer, I'm just a believer. Does my believing cease when I don't get the results I desire? What do you do? I was on a plane to Las Vegas. I wish it was just to hang out with Judd, but it was on, on a plane ride to say goodbye to my father. He had, I was hoping to get there before he passed because he literally had hours to live. When we got there, dad wasn't engaging verbally. Eyes were closed, but the doctors were pretty convinced he could hear me. The two and a half hour flight or so from Seattle, Las Vegas, my kids are there and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And, and you got to understand I'm a preacher's kid. I've, my grandfather was a preacher, my great grandfather, on and on and on. Um, I, I, I know scripture I've never even read. Do you understand what I'm saying? I never even read it, but I know it. And then I have to ask somebody, is that in the Bible? Because I heard that so many times. Yeah, that's the scripture in, in the Old Testament. Oh, I, I like that scripture. So I, I, one of those kids, I've grown up with so much scripture. And in those moments, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit's so faithful. They just start flooding back. 
And all of a sudden, all these scriptures and promises and stories and Old Testament biblical characters and some of the epistles written by Paul. And I'm, this all just, they're just converging on my, my brain and my heart. And I'm thinking, God, what about your promises? And what about the cross? And what about what? And, we, and God, I just, what do I do with all of these, all of these promises? What do you do? What's your response? I, I, I applaud pastors that are here believing God wants to favor our church, bless our church, provide for our church, provide for your family, provide, keep your family, not just heal your family, but how many keep your family healthy? We serve a good God, pastors. Good God, if you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father will good, give, give good things to those who ask? Come on. But where do we go? What do we do? How do we deal with the theological conundrum of I know what the book says, but I'm going to say goodbye to my dad who lived his life believing that Jesus is greater than cancer. What do I do with that? How do I, I? It's not even that I wanted a theological answer. I just wanted a reply of some kind. God, I just need to know. Dad's gone. He's about to be. I'm going to say goodbye. And he, he told me I would take the church, but he told me he'd help. Now he's gone. He's not going to be able to help. So I need you to help me. What do I do? It, I know this sounds very sadistic, but I'm just going to be very candid with you. In some cases, it would have been easier. Six and a half years is a long time to fight. It would almost be easier. And I'm not saying it would be because I have no experience and this is complete ignorance. But let me allow me the luxury for a moment and don't, don't be offended because of my words. But it would almost be easier if he would have died faster. In one sense. But it was stretched out. The one doctor gave him the max three years to live. It became six and a half years. And dad for five years had absolutely no symptoms and was strong in his physical body and was healthy. And all was well. And what ends up happening is you get your hopes up. That's what Proverbs 13, 12, you start getting your hopes up. God, you're fulfilling your promise. The church plant's going well. People are starting to show up. I'm forming a leadership team. Some of the people are giving in the offering. This is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, six months in, there's a turn and you're going, where is the money gone? People are exiting. God, hello, hello. You there? What about these promises? What do I do with this? I want to say something before I go any further, lest you misinterpret what I'm saying. My experiences do not shape my theology. Quite the contrary. My theology shapes my experiences. Make no mistake about it. So I am not trying to propose something, a, a new theology or something new I have learned because I've gone through an experience. I am not the only man in this room. I'm not even the only man that has stood on this platform today that has recently lost their father. My father's death does not change what I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if you would allow me the luxury to ask a, a mature question, I suppose, maybe it's a bit immature, I don't know, but as leaders, what do you do? 
I don't know about you, but I preach God's promises all the time to thousands of people. And then what do you do when in your own life, the promises you proclaim seem to be lacking? God, how does this work? First of all, let's gain some traction a little bit. Let's look at the scripture. Let us consider Hebrews eleven thirteen, which declares unto us, according to uh, Hebrews 11, referencing the great patriarchs of faith, if you will. It says, these all died in faith. This should be noted. We will live this life in faith and we will die in faith. But make no mistake about it, whether in living or dying, I will do it according to faith. I will live a believer and I will die a believer and not a doubter. Jesus is real. His power is sovereign and he is king over the universe and the ages. And by the way, it goes on to say, not having received the promises. So if you're here today and you've got promises that are looming large over your life, but they are unfulfilled or worse, partially fulfilled, you are in good company, sir. For the Bible says these great men and women that we read about and we admire so dearly, the Bible says they saw promises afar off, but they did not taste them, they did not realize them, and they died in faith. What does that tell us about our God? It tells us, first of all, that God is a generational God. It is imperative for us to understand that we are intrinsically connected to the next generation just as sure as we are connected to the prior generation. I am convinced with all my heart my grandfather pastored in a city called Tacoma which is about 45 minutes down the highway from the city I now pastor in and he prayed prayers with a congregation of 200 back in the 40s and 50s and he prayed prayers believing that God would help him reach a city and I think his grandson now is fulfilling some of the prayers that he prayed. Grandpa Elwood thought it was about his generation and his time but what he didn't know there would come a Judah Elwood who would fulfill the prayers that he prayed and the promises that God had given him him God is a generational God he is the God he reveals himself personally as the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob for God his purpose is imperative people are valuable but make no mistake God has no God is not worried with carrying over his promises to generations. That's why it is so critical for us in all that we do in leadership to consider who will replace us, who we will hand the baton off to. Welcome to my life. Welcome to my life. Just being my dad's youth pastor for 10 years, and I would have done that for the rest of my life. And I go to a donut shop with my mom who says, are you ready to take the church? And I'm like, oh my God. And that's not exactly what I said, but I cannot repeat what I said in my head. I don't know if I can do this. God, it's imperative in these critical days that we think generationally. Jesus, help us. God is a generational God, and oftentimes what he promises in Abraham, he fulfills in Isaac, and so on, and, and so forth. It's imperative for us to note. But it's also important for us, in conclusion, to note who is the promiser and who is the promisee. 
And that's exactly what the Shunammite woman was trying to drive home to Elisha. She brings, she poses this question, and this just unfolded before me, but surely by the grace of God, in answer to my question to God. It, it began to develop in that airplane ride to Las Vegas. And I realized, this was your idea, God. This was your idea. You wrote the book. If you notice, the piano has begun to play softly behind me because that is exactly what charismatic Pentecostal preachers do when they want to get spiritual. And I think you can feel the presence of God. Just makes me feel good. I said, God, this was your idea. In fact, I started, these scriptures started coming to me and I said, you, you said you were a healer. I didn't manufacture this. I didn't concoct this. The stories are undeniable. You have the power to heal. It's your problem. And you know what that Shunammite woman did? did? She returned to sender. She took the promise of God that died there on her lap and she took it back to God. And she said, okay, God, you gave me that boy. It's on you. I didn't come up with these promises. I didn't concoct that I was going to plant a church. I didn't manufacture this ministry. I didn't make up this mantra and this mission statement in the Great Commission. This was your idea. You anointed me to preach. You called me to preach. And now it seems as if it's dead. God, this was your idea. So here it is. What do I do? You are the promisee. In a promise, in an interchange of promise, the onus lies not on the promisee, but on the promiser. Please stay with me. Please stay with me. You are not the promiser. This Messiah complex you have developed, let it go. As if this is your doing. As if you can change one human soul. You can't even change your own. You have no power to convert the human soul. All of your persuasive speeches and your intellect and your research and your information is all just noise. Unless the promises of God, which says, I'll be there when you declare my word. My word will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which I set it out to accomplish. Unless God's promises come to pass, we're just making noise and staying busy and playing church. God, these are your promises. And in my mind, I said, that's my dad. You gave me a dad. You said you would heal him. This is on you. And then all of a sudden, I, I kid you not, I, it just started unfolding in front of me. And this is how it happens to me. And I started looking at the Shunammite woman and, 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 and this, this supernatural birth. And then I realized we're never given a name from this son. And then I went back to the Old Testament and I discovered there are seven supernatural births in the Old Testament. Seven supernatural sons, if you will, starting with Isaac and ending with the Shunammite woman. Samson, Joseph, you know, those guys. Seven of them. And you know, the seventh supernatural son in the Old Testament is never named. That's odd. And it should be noted that he experiences a resurrection only after, on the fifth attempt of prayer, 
Work with me. Five is the number of grace. And only after seven sneezes, I'm just one of those crazy guys that believe every single part of the Bible is there for a reason. Do you know why we sneeze? Do you know why the body sneezes? To expel the irritants in the breathing system. Do you know why Jesus came? To expel sin from the human system. And because he was perfect, he had the power to expel sin from every believing human. This unnamed son, this miraculous son, he dies and then he's raised again after a fifth prayer and a seventh sneeze. And I'm sitting there and the Bible is unfolding before me and I'm starting to get the sense this is not, the story is not about a Shunammite woman. It's not about her. And then I started to realize I stepped back from the landscape of the Old Testament and the beautiful narrative that it is and I realized it was never even about Isaac. It wasn't even about Jacob. And I assure you, Sarah knows now. She knows now. It was never about your boy. It was about his boy. And I'm, and I'm flying in this airplane and all of this stuff is coming to me. And then God takes me to 2 Corinthians 1.20 where it says, In Him, in Him, all the promises are yes and Amen. Jesus is the sum and substance of all of God's promises because he is both the fulfiller and the fulfillment. And I quote Jack Hayford in saying that. He is the sum and substance. Might I ask you a question, Pastor? When did Jesus become not enough? When did Jesus become insufficient? There will not be a day that goes by that I don't miss my father. They won't happen. Every day I'll miss him. I still pick up the phone and try to call him. It's embarrassing. But you know what? Dad's gone, but Jesus isn't. We've got it all wrong. We think, God, where are your promises? I don't have the house, I don't have the money. I'm fine with you having a house and money and I'd like to buy you one someday. But it's not about the house. It's not about the money. You need to be a good steward, but when was Jesus not enough? I sat on an airplane and I realized, oh my God, someday I'll get to heaven and I'll realize he's everything. I'll stand with the millions upon billions and we'll realize, oh my God, He is the essence of life. He is the pinnacle of our existence. He is our source. He is our life. He is our provision. He is our deliverance. He is our healer. He is our provider. He is our shelter. He is our shepherd. He is our lion. He is our lamb. He is the beginning. He is the end. He's everything in between. He's Jesus. He's the lily of the valley. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. His name is Jesus, and there's no one beside him. 
him. He is God all by himself. Come on, let's worship Jesus together. Let's worship Jesus together. The object of our obsession. Please hear me. Don't you leave. You can stay standing. Don't you leave NLC talking about I don't have this. I wish I had that. I wish I could get something to stop. In Him, all the promises of God, they all point us to Jesus. And last time I checked, He is available to all who believe. He's everything you need. Woo! I love Jesus. And my dad is in heaven saying something. That's right. That's it. Love your wife. Care for your children. Be everything God's called you to be. You remember, Jesus is your sufficiency. When did we get into this thought that we lacked anything? I lack no good thing. For everything I need comes from him. Jesus. Elisha says to the Shunammite woman, I love this part. He didn't even, I think, know what he was saying. He says, woman, pick up your son. And when I read that part, the Holy Spirit shot through me. And he said, son, pick up Jesus. Your dad's gone. You pick up Jesus. Maybe you're here. You lost a child. You pick up Jesus. Maybe you're here. You lost a friend. You pick up Jesus. Maybe you're here. You lost a spouse. You pick up Jesus. You lost a job. Pick up Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Cling to him. Hold on to him, adore him, consider him, think on him, worship him, speak of him, honor him, obsess over him. Hold on to Jesus. We can't lose, church. I'm telling you, we can't lose because he won't let us. We're going to win. We're going to change the world. Let's keep Jesus the center of our focus and the object of our obsession. 